Welcome back, everyone, to Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And Lucas, you thought our last episode was action-packed. That was small potatoes compared to what we're going to talk about here. Oh, boy. Yeah, we were even texting um, in advance of recording this episode. And in terms of objectively looking at all of the World Series, of the ones that we've done so far... This one has to be up there, probably at least a top two or three of the series that we've done. Let me tell you how much there is to talk about here. On my Word document, in which I take my notes for this podcast, this takes up about two pages. So, Oh, wow. So, yes, we have a lot to talk about. I'm trying to figure out where we should start. I guess we can go back to the All-Star game, which our American League pennant winners, the Boston Red Sox, hosted. They had plenty of starters for this one, both of our teams, in fact. Uh, The Cardinals had a whole bunch of players, mainly in the infield. They had some familiar names, Whitey Kurowski, Marty Marion, Red Shandienst and Stan Musial all starting for the National League in that game. And the Red Sox had Ted Williams starting a game along with Johnny Pesky, Dom DiMaggio, who is Joe's brother, and Bobby Doerr. So we have a lot of names to unpack here, and that's just the very beginning of it. But before we go back to the Red Sox, let's talk about the familiar name, the St. Louis Cardinals. They had to win a playoff over the Brooklyn Dodgers, the first such instance in National League history, to win the pennant. They were powered by MVP Stan Musial, obviously, but then you also had Enos Slaughter, who was leading the pack as well. Musial hit 365, 124 runs, scored 50 doubles, 20 triples. Slaughter scored 100 runs and drove in a major league high 130 home runs. On the pitching side were Howie Pollitt with a 21-10 and 10 record and a 2.10 ERA. Harry Burkeen, I think we were mispronouncing his name the last time we had him on, so I apologize for that. And he won 15 games and Ken Burkhardt 2.88 ERA. So the Cardinals more than enough power to go ahead and win this pennant on both sides. Yeah, it took a pennant playoff to win this, but Pouts nationally low 2.10 ERA enough to win this pennant as tough as it was. This was a Cardinal team that missed the 1945 World Series, but we have to remember that the prior iterations that had made the World Series had been ravaged by guys getting drafted into the war, especially in 45 when you have Stan Musial leaving. Now you've got him back, you've got Slaughter back, you have the second season of Red Shandienst, their uh, second baseman. He played 137 games in 1945, did pretty well, and then here in 46 made the All-Star team, finished 26th in MVP voting, hit 281, slugged 343, no home runs in 1946, drove in just 34, but he scored 94 runs, had 170 hits, uh, the 322 on base, 343 slugging, so, I mean, he's not quite to that elite elite level yet but this is the first of his 10 all-star appearances over the course of his career so he will be uh, very good in the years to come one player missing from this world series is max lanier who started the 46 season with a 6-0 record and a 1.93 era 
but he, along with several other National League players, left to join the Mexican League. Happy Chandler, the commissioner, discouraged others from leaving by threatening those who were jumping with five-year suspensions from the majors, although he later issued an amnesty in 1949. And the Mexican League, obviously, by today's standards, not really remembered a whole lot, but obviously it was a way for players to make extra money. And I don't want to say that this is anything near what was going on with the Black Sox scandal almost 30 years prior, but you have to see some similarities there. A little bit, although... I would say there's a difference between betting on games versus going to play in another league. It almost reminds me a little bit of like the NBA and the ABA in the 60s and 70s, although I'm not kind of sure exactly what the financial situation of the Mexican League would have been versus, you know, knowing a little bit more about the NBA and the ABA and what that was like before they finally merged. By the way, the Dodgers had a seven and a half game lead in July, but they faded down the stretch and that led to the National League playoff that led the Carlos to win the pen. But switching over to the American League, the Red Sox are in the World Series for the first time since 1918, which was right before they sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees. Before this year, they had only seven winning seasons since that last world championship and finishing in last place eight times. And they win the pennant by averaging more than five runs a game. And what a lineup this was. Ted Williams was so feared that we started to see the beginning of the shift of players to the right side of the field. In some extreme cases, everybody but one guy would be on the right side. And I think it's very interesting that we're talking about this now, Lucas, when we are on the verge of seeing the shift officially banned from baseball. Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating uh, idea here. Ted Williams is revered, and we've mentioned him a little bit in prior episodes, just kind of talking up where guys have ranked in the American League going into World Series games, and Ted Williams kind of keeps coming up, but this is the first time that he's actually showed up in here. Now, granted, Williams is in just his fifth full season in the major leagues factoring in that he served in the military from 1943 through 1945 but the american league mvp put up a uh, i would say paltry by his standards 342 batting average but he compounded that with a 497 on base in 1946 which is absolutely absurd and don't forget his 38 home runs and 123 RBIs as well, not to mention the inside-the-park home run against Cleveland on September 13th to clinch the American League pennant for the Red Sox. He also had 156 walks. Uh, picking up the slack with him as well were Pesky and DiMaggio, hitting 335 and 316 respectively. Rudy York, who we saw with Detroit last year, another key player for them, he, along with Bobby Dorn, knocked in over 100 runs, 119 and 116, respectively. So you have all this power on both sides offensively. You would think that we are in store for an offensive heavy series. And in many respects, we will be, but we will see some key pitching, which you might not notice at first, but by the end, we definitely will. 
Tex Houston, the ace of the Red Sox staff, 2011, 2.75 ERA. Dave Ferris won 25 games. You have Mickey Harris winning 17 games. So not the most intimidating rotation for an American League pennant winner ever, but impressive stats nonetheless. Well, in Tex Houston, by the way, 172 strikeouts in 1946. That total led the... Red Sox staff, it was not among the league leaders in the majors that year, but we're starting to see the strikeout become more prevalent from pitchers. Houston, by the way, finished 13th in MVP voting in 1946. So let us get into this World Series. Happy Chandler throwing out the first pitch in Game 1, before Game 1, I should say. And lots of National League dignitaries are on hand at Sportsman's Park. You have Giants owner Horace Stoneham and player manager Mel Otts, new Reds manager Johnny Noon, Cubs manager Charlie Grimm, and Phillies general manager Herb Pennock. We have talked about him before. And game 1 is, among other things, defined by the Cardinals shifting against Williams and Stan Musial doubling off the right field wall to score Shane Deanst. And when the Cardinals took a 2-1 lead into the ninth inning, Pollitt needed one more strike to win the game. Tom McBride singles to tie the game for the Red Sox. The Red Sox completes the comeback in the 10th inning when York hits a home run into a concession stand at the top of the left field bleachers to win the game. But that was not the only big thing to happen here. Also in the bottom of the eighth inning, before all of this craziness with the concession stand, you had Joe Gargiola, a young Cardinals catcher, involved in a very interesting play. In the bottom of the eighth inning, you had the first two outs taken, and then Kurowski singled, and then Garagiola hit a double to center field, and that happened when DiMaggio lost the ball in the haze, which allowed the run to score. He was thrown out trying to stretch a hit into a triple before Kurowski crossed the plate, but home plate umpire Reed Boundfant and third base umpire Charlie Berry, they allow Kurowski's run to score because the Red Sox third baseman, Pinky Higgins, what a name, by the way, he obstructed Kurowski as he was rounding third. The Red Sox protested, but it was no use. Obviously, it didn't matter as far as the outcome, but one game in and we've already got so much action here. I'm just impressed that they allowed a run to count because the runner was threatened on his way around third base. Like, what a reason to count a run in a game that just seems so bizarre for that to even happen in the first place, but then for that to end up impacting the outcome to some extent. So we head into game two. Harry Burkeen, who's known as the cap, by the way, diminutive lefty. Remember, he pitched well in 1944 when the Cardinals were playing the Browns. He pitches a four-hit shutout to win game two. And he actually kind of helped his own cause, albeit with some help. He bunted at one point, but a throw by Higgins went past Pesky's outstretched glove at second, which put runners on second and third with no outs. And then eventually we have back-to-back -back hits from Moore and Musio, which allowed Burkeen as well as Del Rice, who led off the fifth inning with a single to score. So Burkeen, albeit with a little help, like I said, helping his own cause in both facets of the game. Yeah, both of those runs coming in the bottom of the fifth, uh, the 
Terry Moore single makes it a 2 nothing game, and then Stan Musial bounces into a fielder's choice that scores Burkeen, who had advanced to second on the errant throw on his uh, attempt at the plate. So the Cardinals, that 3 nothing lead at that point, and that was more than enough. It was more than enough, and now we go to Fenway Park for Game 3 of the World Series. Boy, I'm glad we don't have wartime restrictions forcing these 3-4 series anymore. Joe DiMaggio is in the stands to watch his brother Don play. Dodgers manager Leo DeRocher and AL President Will Harridge are there as well. I should mention this too. I saw this while I was watching the World Series film for this. The reach ball had always been the official ball of the American League up to this point, and the same rang true here. Ferris got the start for the Red Sox, pitches a six-hit shutout, 4-2-0. The Red Sox get some timely offense on a home run the first inning by York that goes over the Green Monster. So, pretty easy game for the Red Sox after the season that Ferris had, but hey, who was shocked by that? Rudy York making the Cardinals pay. So with two outs and a runner on first, Ted Williams, the cleanup hitter for the Red Sox in this game, is intentionally walked by Cardinal starter Murray Dixon and Rudy York immediately making him pay on that one. So good job on him to take advantage of the Cardinals' decision. The Red Sox adding an insurance run in the bottom of the eighth on an error by Red Shane Deanst. Drink. So we go to game four. Red Munger is starting game four for the Cardinals. He had been an Army lieutenant until that August. So talk about a huge shift in his lifestyle. And he really only needed to be just a little good in this one because he had more than enough offense. Enos Slaughter leads off the second inning with a 380-foot home run to right field. And the Red Sox star committing some goofy plays as well. Houston, who is the Red Sox star, he throws wild to first on more sack bunt in the third, putting runners on second and third, no outs. At that point, Houston was replaced. Very early hook for him. And the pitcher on the mound in his place is Jim Bagby. And it really does not matter because the cars are going to do some damage anyway. Musial, the next hitter, doubles both runners home. The Red Sox do get a little bit of offense with Door hits a two-run homer over the Monster in the eighth inning, but the Cardinals keep it going on in the ninth. Slaughter leads off with a single, and they boost to third when Higgins throws wild to first on a Kurowski bunt. We have some more Red Sox relief pitchers going in after Garagiola has an RBI single. The Red Sox, in fact, need six pitchers to get through Game 4, which reads more like a modern-day box score, but that is the case here. The Cardinals gets 20 hits, and their 12 runs come just short of the record 13, which was scored by the Giants in Game 3 of the 1921 series. Kurowski, Slaughter, and Garagiola all have four hits, as does one player for the Red Sox, Wally Moses. 22 players had four hits in a World Series game before 1946. So if you had offense, Game 4 was for you. Game 4 was definitely for you. Uh, you mentioned that uh, game by Slaughter, Karowski, and Garagiola. The four hits by each of them. This is, I believe, the only time in World Series history that we have had three players on one team all record at least four hits in a game. Yeah, and let's not forget about the four Red Sox errors, which is the most by any team in any game this series. Drink. 
And the pitching woes flip in Game 5. Well, first of all, Bobby George does not get the start for the Red Sox in Game 5 in the field. He is replaced by infielder Don Goodridge, and it really does not end up hurting the Red Sox. Three of the first four Red Sox hitters line base hits, and Powell, who was partially affected by a sore back, was replaced in that first inning by Al Brazel. Uh, you had a home run over the Green Monster for Leon Culberson, and the Red Sox go on to win this by a score of 6-3. to three. And who knows what would have happened if Paul was even a little bit healthy in this. And you got to give him credit for trying to give it a go, but clearly he wasn't right, so there really wasn't a choice but to replace him in this first inning. Yeah, you have uh, singles by Gutteridge and Pesky to open the game. A uh, bounce out to third by Dom DiMaggio retires Gutteridge, but then Ted Williams with an RBI single to score Pesky. That's the only damage the Red Sox get in that first inning. Cardinals end up tying it on a uh, Harry Walker RBI double in the top of the second, but the Red Sox go right back in front in their half. Don Gutteridge, who we just mentioned getting the start in this one, getting the RBI single here. That gives the Red Sox the lead for good. They tack on one more in the sixth on a, the aforementioned home run by Leanne Culberson. Remember that name, by the way. That'll come up later. And then the Red Sox with three insurance runs in the bottom of the seventh and RBI double by Pinky Higgins. And then Roy Partey with a fielder's choice bounce to short that probably should have ended the inning, but instead an errant throw to second allows Pinky Higgins to score as well as Rudy York to get to the Red Sox six runs. The Cardinals plating a couple on a two-run single by Harry Walker in the top of the ninth. So we go back to St. Louis for game six. The Red Sox have a chance to clinch, but any thought of that goes away in the third inning. Del Rice leads it off with a single and then Burkeen bunts into a fielder's choice. Then Shane Deanst hits a double, which brings Burkeen to third. Moore hits a fly ball to right field, which allows Burkeen to score. And then Stan Musial lakes out an infield hit. And then the floodgates just open. We get back-to-back singles by Kurowski and Slaughter. The, Red- the Cardinals score three runs in this game. And that's more than enough for Burkeen. The Cardinals win this 4-1, forcing a Game 7. Yeah, Mickey Harris, the starter for the Red Sox in this one, gets lifted after the Ena Slaughter single makes it 3-0. Tex Hewson comes in and gets some mop-up duty going through the 7th. Earl Johnson getting the final uh, inning of pitching for the Red Sox in this one. And for the second straight year, we have a winner-take-all game in the World Series. Yes, we do, and five of the Cardinals' eight hits in this game, I should point out, came in that third inning. Although, I should point this out before we get into Game 7. Rudy York hit a triple off of the center field wall in this one, so that was the offensive highlight for the Red Sox. Moore just missed making a great catch and Dorr ended up getting him home on a sack fly. So, again, we go to Game 7, and here's the other ball of the time. The Spalding ball was the official National League ball, 
and had been for some time. So again, nice job of the World Series film to point that out. So in Game 7, we have teams trading runs in the first couple of innings. And then things start to go a little awry in the fifth inning. Ferris allows a couple of Cardinal runs to score. And Ferris is replaced in the game by Joe Dobson. And that is not all. And we're building to something really big here. In the eighth yes, inning, the Red Sox have two pitch hitters lead off with base hits. And Brakeen comes into the game for the starting pitcher for this game, Murray Dixon. And still, it's not enough to keep Dom DiMaggio from tying the game on a two-run double off the right center field wall with a 3-1 count. So you talk about a back-and-forth affair. I'm sure the fans at Sportsman's Park, 36,143 of them, are just going crazy as to what might be happening here. Yeah, I mean, they have to be feeling really good going into that eighth inning, especially when you get Brakeen in in a bit of a jam. You mentioned the uh, pinch hits by Rip Russell and George Metkovich. Uh, Russell with a single, Metkovich with a double. So you've got second and third, nobody out. Brakeen comes in. He strikes out Wally Moses looking for the first out. Johnny Pesky lines out to right to get the second out. So you feel like you've got things under control. And then Dom DiMaggio gets that 3-1 pitch into right field that scores both of them. And all of a sudden, we have a brand new ball game here in the top of the eighth. But hold everything so in the process with that rbi double by dom dimaggio he ends up pulling his hamstring and cannot finish the game and so leon culberson who we just mentioned a couple of games ago has to come in and play center field for the remainder of it remember this moment it's going to come up later so Bob Klinger comes in to pitch for the Red Sox in the eighth inning, and he promptly gives up a leadoff single to Slaughter. Then he gets the next two batters out of first on a botched sack bunt that he catches while running towards the first baseline. And then the second is on a fly ball to Ted Williams in left field. And before we continue, let's go back to game one real quickly. So Mike Gonzalez is the third base coach for the Cardinals. During the fourth inning, Slaughter had a triple that he thought he could have scored on because there was a bad relay throw in that fourth inning, but he was held up by Gonzalez and he ended up stranded, and the Cardinals ended up losing game one. So with that on his mind, I'm sure he had to be happy when Eddie Dyer, the Cardinals manager, gave him permission to run home on two outs if he thought he could score. And, you know, he's on first base at this point. So I'm sure even the most aggressive fan of the stands is thinking, oh, but there's no way he's going to score no matter what the hit is, unless it's a triple or a home run. Well, we have to remember, though, too, just a few episodes ago, we were talking about this Cardinal team and how the sports writers of the day were talking them up as this elite base running team. So if you're going to give anybody the green light to just go for it, with two outs in a tie game, it's got to be somebody like Ina Slaughter, right? It's got to be. And it's just so strange that we're talking about a man who led all of baseball in RBIs that year, talking about what is to come here. And at the same time, this is kind of similar to, oh, Derek Jeter was a great hitter, but we know more for these great defensive plays that he made. But here 
is Slaughter in the most interesting of situations with two outs and his teammate Harry the Hat Walker coming up to the plate. And what happens is Walker hits what turns out to be a short double and, you know, we'll get more into how this should have been scored in a little bit. But he had a very short double to left center field and Slaughter just takes off before the pitching leaves Klinger's arms and he is able to score all the way from first base on the fastest play that pretty much anyone ever could have seen. Now, let us go into these two myths that are surrounding the play that came to be known as Slaughter's Mad Dash. First, it's often said that he scored from first on a single, which is you know great for romanticism in baseball, because how can you not be romantic about baseball? But even Baseball Reference still scores this as a double, albeit a very short one. And for pretty much his entire life afterwards, Johnny Pesky was a scapegoat for Red Sox fans because they claimed he held the ball on the play because he supposedly hesitated as he decided what to do with the throw from the outfield. But the film of this refutes the allegation. Uh, a couple of authors who wrote the book, Red Sox Century, said... Catch to throw takes less than a second. He does not pause or freeze with the ball, although his body language exhibits surprise. Pesky, who got all the blame, simply made an average play in a situation that was already lost. So, given all of this, do you still think that this, in spite of him scoring on a double and not a single, that this ranks up there with the great plays in World Series history? I would say it has to, especially given... You know, the hit and run is one of the more exciting plays in baseball, and that ended up being what this was. And now whether you want to call this a single or a double, obviously, officially, it's a double. That is how it is in baseball lore. It has been that way for, as we are recording this, 77 years, if I did my math right in my head real quick. They're not going to change it now. The other thing in defense of Johnny Pesky would be you know, some people have claimed that he was checking Walker, who was coming around first at this point. Whatever the case, Roy Partee, the catcher, has to come up the line, and he catches it up the line just as Slaughter crosses home plate. It is four to three Cardinals with two outs in the bottom of the eighth. Let's talk about some of the written accounts of this thing. So in 1962, the Boston American's Huck Finnegan wrote, Instead of looking for a goat, however, it would have been wiser simply to credit Slaughter with a dairy and imaginative piece of base running, which I would say is a very daring statement for a Boston sports writer to write. Um, I know that Pesky himself was not happy with himself afterwards, but if a Red Sox fan in 1962 saw that piece of writing, you know, given all of the hardships that the Red Sox have had since selling Babe Ruth to the Yankees, what would you say? I would probably be a little bit upset. I don't know. It's hard to kind of put myself in their shoes at that point, even with the benefit of hindsight and knowing what we know now. So let's go to the St. Louis side as far as the press. Bob Rogue, a St. Louis sports writer, was there. And he says that it was Slaughter's bad dash instead of Pesky holding the ball. He said, I didn't sense any hesitation. It was a run and hit and Slaughter was running. It was a slicing fly ball. And if he hadn't replaced DiMaggio, uh, Culberson, 
that's who he's talking about. And if he hadn't been replaced, DiMaggio maybe would have caught the ball. As he hit second base, he said to himself, I'm going to score. Pesky was surprised and off balance. His throw was weak, and as it happened late, but he did not hold the ball. And he was upset, even in his later years, that the official scorers, and that there were three of them because this was the World Series, which I'm happy about because there's a lot of pressure on one person, that they scored his fly ball a double. Ricky Reporter at the time, Brogue said, he told the scorers then and there, Gentlemen, you know what? By scoring this a double, you've taken the romance out of a great run. And he also said later on, I'm very sensitive about that because it's not fair to Pesky, it's not fair to Slaughter. In his book, he wrote, I always resented that arbitrarily, unfairly, and unromantically. The official scores called Walker's game-winning hit a double. Harry agreed it was a single, not a double, as I insisted to the official scores. They didn't listen. Too bad. Heck, wouldn't history treat the Paul Revere right of Ennis Slaughter more dramatically if it has most certainly happened. The big-butted buzzer from Carolina scored the winning run from first base on a single. So, I mean, talk about holding a grudge more than half a century later. Yeah, uh, especially given, too, like, this is a game that they won. In the grand scheme of things, who cares if it's a single or a double? Although, I don't necessarily disagree with the sentiment that it does sound a lot more awesome to say, oh, hey, I scored the game-winning run in Game 7 of the World Series on a single from first base, then it would be, oh, it was a double and I scored from first, whatever. Broke died in 2005, so, you know, we can't get his intent on that now, although he would be over 100 if he was alive today. But in spite of Slaughter's run, there was still a ninth inning to be played, and it really did not matter because the Cardinals had Burkeen on the mound and his final pitch of the series was a screwball that went for a fielder's choice. The Cardinals win the World Series. It's their sixth time in nine World Series appearances since 1926 of the Cardinals win. And it's the fourth time they win a World Series in seven games. So I can't imagine that more than a few Cardinals fans have not suffered heart attacks in the 20 years that have happened since the Cardinals first played in the Fall Classic. Well, I would argue your uh, description of that ninth inning doesn't really do it justice because the Red Sox do put together a little rally to threaten to tie the game. Rudy York leads off the top of the ninth with a single. He's lifted for a pinch runner. Paul Campbell takes over to run. Bobby Doerr follows that up with a single. Campbell advances to second on the play. So you got two guys on, nobody out right at the start. Pinky Higgins comes up. He ends up bunting to the left side, but the Cardinals able to take advantage of this a little bit as they get the force out at second base to retire door. Campbell does advance to third, so you've got runners at the corners, one out. Roy Partee up at the plate. He ends up popping out in foul territory to the first baseman. Earl Johnson, the pitcher, was then due up. He gets pinch hit for by Tom McBride, and McBride ends up bouncing into that aforementioned fielder's choice that wins the game and the series for the Cardinals. Speaking of the Cardinals, let's go into some of uh, their offensive numbers and one particular pitcher's numbers, which I think would merit him World Series MVP had this been given out. The catching for the Cardinals was very, very effective. Uh, we mentioned Joe Garagiola, and then we also talked about Del Rice, I think a little bit. Uh, they had combined nine hits. Five of Musial's six hits of the series went for extra bases. 
Walker had an OPS of 1,053. He had a slash line of 412, 524, and 529. But it was Burkine's three wins that tied a World Series record that really stood out. Not to mention his ERA, which was impressive as well. 0.45, and he had a whip of 0.95. And he is the first lefty to accomplish the feat, and the first to do it since Cleveland Stan Kovaleski in 1920. So, in spite of all the offense here, I think you would have to give World Series MVP honors to Burkine. I think I'd have to agree, because, yeah, there's a lot of impressive hitting numbers. You had... Uh... Murray Dixon hitting 400 for the series. Whitey Karowski at 296. Garagiola 316. Uh, you mentioned all the extra base hits for Stan Musial, but Musial only hits 222 in total for the series. Does have a 323 on base and 444 slugging, but I feel like the average kind of drags that down a little bit. And of those extra base hits, four of them doubles, one triple. The Cardinals just two home runs for the series. Yeah, I feel like I, we got to go with Burkina. I mean, this isn't quite 1905 levels of dominance in terms of guys that won three games over the course of a World Series, but you look at the numbers, that's still pretty darn good. Yeah, let's talk about two Red Sox on the opposite ends of the offensive spectrum. Door had an OPS of 1,049, slash shining of 409, 458, 591. But let's talk about Ted Williams. He had an awful World Series and what was the only World Series of his career as it turned out. He hit balls hard but he was not able to live up to his usual standards. Uh, he only hit 200, no extra base hits, only one RBI and that failure followed him for the rest of his life but he had three disadvantages that were facing him during the series. First of all, he was injured. While the Red Sox could, because you remember, the Red Sox clinched the pennant early and the Cardinals and the Dodgers were bailing it out in the National League pennant. The Red Sox kept in shape while they were waiting by playing exhibition games against the team of American League All-Stars. And Senator Southpaw Mickey Hafner hit him on the elbow and the injury hampered him throughout the World Series. Second is the shift that we talked about and Williams only got one bunt hit in the series, but most of the time the shift was effective in preventing base hits. And last but not least, he played the entire World Series thinking that the Red Sox had just traded him to the Yankees for Joe DiMaggio. Although Tom Yawkey, the Red Sox owner, denied the rumors, he had been convinced that secret deal had been struck behind his back and he couldn't concentrate on anything else really throughout the series. He said after game one, I guess I'll miss Boston. I know my way around there. What do I do in New York on off days? So without all of that, we might be talking about a different World Series outcome, but as we found out, the Red Sox success was very heavily reliant on the success of one Mr. Ted Williams, the greatest left-handed hitter in baseball history. Yeah, I mean, Williams tried to do his part elsewhere. He walked five times, so he posted a three thirty-three on base percentage for the series, but he also struck out a team high five times over the course of the seven games. So it wasn't just a matter of the shift, although that definitely played a role. He was also getting retired without putting the ball in play as well, so credit to the Cardinals pitching staff for that. It's too bad that we don't see Ted Williams anymore in this podcast. It's such a shame that someone with such a reputation had to struggle so much. But, hey, that's why they play the games. 
That is 100% why they play the game. So some of the other notes from this series, and this is actually kind of a heartbreak for the Red Sox. They haven't known failure like this on baseball's biggest stage before. They have this loss. It was their sixth World Series appearance. They had won their first five, and this was a record that would stand until 2003 when the Florida Marlins would match and then ultimately surpass it. And Ted Williams won the Triple Crown the next year in 1947, but we are not going to see him as we already alluded to in 1947 in the World Series. Instead, we get a team we're all too familiar with by now. We're going to continue to get familiar with the New York Yankees. And it's another intercity series with the Brooklyn Dodgers making it back. And this time, they have a real pioneer on their side. So, if nothing else, this World Series will be interesting because of this one particular individual. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Unfortunately, you're going to have to tune in next week to find out what happens. That's right. So for Lucas Mitchell, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to a very action-packed 1946 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe as well. We will see you next time.